Happy Monday, one and all. This is Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And this is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, December 6th, 2021. Got a jam-packed show for you here. We mentioned some of it, teased some of it in our last episode, but we really have been talking for a while now about wanting to do some in-depth interviews, discussions about this big P&M merger that is proposed with Avangrid, which is the U.S. subsidiary of a Spanish company called Iberdola. They have uh, lots of utilities across the world and across the country, but now they're looking to get into New Mexico. They're one of the leading utilities around renewable energies, uh, but especially in the Northeast, a little bit of a rocky track record around billing and service to folks there. We talked to a reporter from the Bangor Daily News uh, several weeks ago to sort of get the lowdown on that. This week, we are jumping into a two-part conversation with leaders at both PM and Avangrid. Uh, and in this first part of this interview, we're going to hear why the merger is a good idea in their mind, what it would mean for ratepayers, what it means for a shift to renewable energy in New Mexico that we've seen the governor make a big priority with her Renewable Energy Transition Act. Uh, and so these are big things and affect everybody's pocketbooks and they're complicated. The PRC, which will make the final decision on this merger, that's the Public Regulation Commission, had a hearing on this last week with some pretty harsh statements and questions about Avangrid as well. And again, it's a lot to follow, so we wanted to try to spend some good time on this, breaking it down for you. And the person doing that, of course, is our environment reporter, Laura Paskus. So again, she sits down in part one of her interview with PM leaders and Avangrid leaders. Here is that interview. Thank you so much for joining me on New Mexico in Focus today um, to talk about the proposed merger between your two companies. This is a super complicated issue, and I'm really looking forward to having kind of a, a plain language talk about these really complicated issues. Um, Pat and Don, I'd love to start with you. Um, why does PNM need this merger? Why is this so important for PNM? Well, Laura, and thank you for your um, time today, and we will endeavor to get rid of our normal acronyms, which we all use. Uh, PNM um, started looking around and surveying the energy landscape, and as you know from your work, it's, it's incredibly complicated. Um, the issue of climate change is paramount, and the faster we can transition our portfolio, the better. Technology is becoming more and more interesting and more and more sophisticated. And you really need to be a large company with a lot of money on your balance sheet in order to help keep costs low for customers. And while PNM is a large company in terms of New Mexico, we are a very small utility in the United States. So we started looking around for someone that had all the things that we wanted in a merger partner, someone that had the same values that we did in terms of respect for our environment, for our communities, our employees, and our um, culture here in New Mexico and communities, someone that had a, a big balance sheet and someone that had technological, ex technological expertise. 
And we looked around and surveyed all of the utilities um, in the United States and ended up um, working with Auburn Grid because we thought they were the perfect fit for all those things I listed. And Auburn Grid happens to be majority owned, 80% owned by a company in Spain called Ibadrola, which is a world leader in renewables and technology and has a very strong balance sheet and, and a credit rating. So it was sort of a marriage made in heaven. Took a little, took a little romance, but we thought that it made sense because they want what's best for New Mexicans, just as we want what's best for New Mexicans. So Pedro, thanks for joining us. What is kind of your elevator pitch um, for the current PNM customer? Why? What? How will this merger benefit PNM customers? If you want to make sure that the people have the best, the best quality of service. Is, you know, it's not only us. I think you know, a lot of people can do that. But if you want to make sure it's the best quality of service at the cheapest price, unless you have critical mass, it's impossible. Okay, we have 32 million customers. Imagine our purchasing power to buy things. You know, you know, PM has you know a million, less than a million. So from that point of view, it's impossible you can buy you can buy things that will allow to give that service at the same prices. SAP, you know, substations, wires, everything. So we all need to become together. And that's why the, the angle I think, you know, for a customer in, 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 in New Mexico for me is very simple. We're gonna make sure that PNM and the customers benefit from our size. Second, the balance sheet. I think Pat mentioned that. As an example, PNM has, has right now in the holding company, 1 billion of debt. We are happy to take that billion to our holding company in the US, okay? We already have in the US operations more or less four times the size of PNM. So we already a very big company in the US. We, we own eight utilities. I said the same thing every time when I bought a utility, when we merged with new companies. You know, we want to be local, but our balance sheet, every single time, you know, we acquired a utility, the rating went up by one notch. If your rating goes up, basically the cost goes down. So the ratepayers benefit. This one billion of debt that you have in the holding company PM right now, right now, will move to a Vanguard holding company. Imagine what is for New Mexico to have 1 billion less, less of debt. Otherwise, that will have to be taken care of by New Mexico over many years, as you can imagine. And third, I think the customers, we believe, you know, the green world has no comeback. I think, you know, we started fighting in that world 20 years ago when nobody was fighting. So I think, you know, we were very alone 20 years ago fighting against a lot of people, against a lot of companies, a lot of governments. Everybody now is very green. So it's very easy to be green right now. But I can tell you, you know, COP26 last week and two weeks ago, you know, we were the guys there fighting, you know, to make sure there was an agreement. I think, you know, Biden, you know, signed to President Biden, you know, a, a bill two days ago. Ibetrola Van Grid was there. You know, we were, you know, probably the only energy company invited. Why? Because we, they know we are the guys fighting to make sure the world moves in a totally different direction. So we prove it. You know, we want to do it, but we prove it. We have it done. So I think there are many reasons why we believe, you know, you know, we are the right partner for PNM, and we also run the companies locally. You know, I know many U.S. companies, when they go abroad, they send 100 American people to run it. The Chinese, they send 1,000. The Germans, in our case, it's very simple. Check our management in the U.S. right now. It's all Americans. There may be one guy who is not American, one lady, you know, perhaps I'm missing one or two, but the rest are Americans. And if they're not Americans, are the best we can find. Okay, you know how we're going to be running. You know, PNM, you have done there right now. You know, we expect you know Don, you know, to be the person taking the decisions. 
You can call our CEOs, the president of the other utilities, you know, and ask them how they run the utilities. They are the people in charge. If the merger were to go through, what are some of the short-term and then the longer-term plans for renewable energy in New Mexico? Some of the changes we might see. Yeah, we're already on the path and we've proposed uh, to be, uh, you know, carbon-free by 2040. We'll look at as part of the merger to be there by 2035. And so, as Pat said, you know, we need battery technology and we need, we need other technology to come along to kind of fill the gap. And that'll be important, but we're all confident with the dollars and the money that's going in that that, that will happen. And so, you know, in the, in the near term, it's continuing to, to look for those renewable resources. Um, whether they're battery, wind, or solar. At the same time, it's balancing our reliability. We ha absolutely have to be uh, reliable, and so we'll continue to balance that. But as we look in the, in the future, um, you'll see uh, uh, an energy sector, and it's not just in New Mexico, it'll be in the West, uh, but I'm convinced there'll be new technology along there as well, too. So the battery, the wind, the solar, uh, pump storage is another element, but there's a whole different other set of factors that are out there that will continue to, as, as innovation continues to, to kick in. Uh, I know that uh, Evadrol is heavily invested in, you know, they've been doing this for 20 years. They were well in front of the curve, curve in Europe, and they've invested and they continue to invest in new technology. So that will be one of the huge benefits we get is we can leverage some of that technology that they're well down the path on. Pedro, could you talk about some of the specifics we might see on the ground? And also if that, if that, electricity generated by renewable sources is for New Mexicans, if it's for export, kind of what we're looking at. I think when you think about New Mexico, what can you see? Immediately, you know, we have the resources to talk to the governor, to talk, you know, to the other parties, to talk to the public commission, you know, do it, you know, outside of regulation, inside of regulation, there are many options. Texas needs energy. California needs energy. Mexico need, needs energy. So it's a question of what do you want to do? We are, you know, transmission builders. You know, there is need for transmission everywhere because the electricity, the sources are there, but there is not connected when the consumption is. So the question is what New Mexico wants to benefit from. If you want to best benefit from some things, don't let just people to build the assets on them and be somewhere else. Make sure they become locals. That's what we want to do, to create a hub in New Mexico that, you know, the, the employment, the economic de development remains there. We have done that in the past. You know, everywhere we were going to do offshore, you see the offshore wind development right now in the U.S. Well, I think we're going to be one of the three, four players in the U.S. doing offshore wind. Well, we're going to need a lot of, you know, backup work, engineering work, you know, centers, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we have, you know, control centers in Glasgow. We have control centers in Toledo, Spain. Okay, you don't need to have that where the offshore wind assets are. Of course, we're going to have things in Massachusetts. Of course, we will have things, you know, in the Carolinas but we will have other things in other places. So I think we will bring the opportunity for New Mexico to start doing things that otherwise you will miss you know, that wave. I think we're the type of people that can help New Mexico to be part of those you know, cakes ahead of us. So we talked to a reporter recently at the Bangor Daily News in Maine. Um, Alvin Grid's been there for about a decade now. And one of the issues that she pointed out was problems with billing, especially after a batch of serious storms. And in a recent story, the Spanish press covered that um, customers saw their bills by increase by 35% in July. I think these are the kinds of things that make New Mexicans a little bit nervous. Can you assure customers in New Mexico that these same kinds of problems with customer service or rate increases won't happen here? Okay. I think let me, let me just go one by one because 
I think it's important to make sure that, you know, we, we explain what it is because, you know, the way you put it there is not really what, you know, what's happening. The first thing is we change the billing system in Maine. If you ask any utility operator, when you change a billing system, you have a real mess, okay? But, you know, we have to do it and it was the time to do it. It's now 19 months, non-stop with no, no issue, zero. So if you want to speak about two years ago and three years ago, when we changed the billing system, I agree, but we have to do it. And we're very proud how the work was done by the local people. You know, and we put additional effort, 19 months with no issue. So we're, we're very comfortable about what it is and not is. Second, you're referring to a rate increase. We are right now, you know, going to the public commission in Maine because the rate increase coming ahead now is because of the generation piece of the bill. It's not because of the networks. Okay, because of gas prices, because other reasons, the generation piece, what we call the supply piece, has gone up materially. It's not because of the networks. And also you have transmission projects in New England that are allocated you know, to Maine because they benefit you know, later from that. Mm -hmm. Again, that's not because of you know, central Maine power. So that's another example why you know, it's not what we are doing. It's things that you have to put in the bill for other people. Third, we had you know, very strong opposition you know, from you know, some legislatures in Maine you know, to a transmission line from Canada into Massachusetts. That is funded by the fossil and nuclear operators in the region. They don't want any new generation there. Why? If you bring hydro, it's very cheap. If you don't bring any electricity into, North, into New England, the prices remain very high. You make a lot of money. So that's why the opposition we have had to the line is funded by fossil, fossil generators that they wanna make sure nothing is built, nothing. No new generation, no transmission lines to bring power, et cetera, et cetera. In Maine, we are the best operator in reliability and service by far. If you compare us with Maine, you know, Emera Maine, who by the way was approved by the public commission, you know, to buy, you know, as you know, a, a utility in New Mexico, we are much better operator than they are from reliability and everything. And the public commission approved them. That's why we're very comfortable. If you look at the penalties, not in Maine, but in, the, in New England, I think we have probably the lowest and penalties is because of the regulatory system. The penalties can be negative or actually rate increases. Okay, so you have both and we have both situations. We are the best and the lowest penalty in New York, in Connecticut, and in Maine, as I told you, we are the best you know, operator. And finally, in terms of storms, I mean, we got, you know, last year, the, you know, the price, you know, for the best storm react reaction operator in the Northeast. Please keep in mind in Maine, in New England, you know, in New York and Connecticut, you used to have one hurricane every five years. We're having two or three major storms now a year. The infrastructure is probably 50, 60 years, you know, 70 years old. I think we're very proud to be to be received those awards. I think we have been congratulated by the governors, you know, in those states. We have been put as an example in Connecticut and in Maine. And I think in the case, you know, of in, in Connecticut, New York, and in the case of Maine, as I said to you. You know, we're already 19 months with no issue because of the change in the billing system. Right. Well, thank you, all three of you so much for talking with me today. I appreciate the chance to walk through some of these really complicated issues. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Laura. So our full interview with those Avangrid PNM leaders was about an hour long. And so we want to bring as much of it to you as possible. We'll have part two coming up uh, on an uh, upcoming episode of the podcast. But wanted to 
give a little bit of extra for you here as well, in particular around no doubt you've been following that even before this proposed merger, in part because of the governor's renewable energy goals, uh, we've already started shutting down some coal-fired power plants up in the Four Corners, which has huge implications, of course, in terms of jobs and economy up there. And so that's a, a difficult uh, th- situation that folks, PNM and those communities are trying to deal with. And so we really wanted to know why Avangrid wants to jump into the middle of all that by uh, engaging in this proposed merger with PNM. So I uh, want to bring that little bit extra to you here, which is also a great status update on the closing of those cold fire, coal-fired power plants, easy for me to say, up in the four corners. So here again, environment reporter Laura Paskus. So I wanted to talk about the coal-fired power plants in northwestern New Mexico for just a minute. Um, it's clear that these these are problematic. Um, we can't be using coal anymore, yet those people and communities rely upon those jobs. There's so much disagreement right now over abandoning or repurposing those coal-fired power plants, and I'm curious why any company would want to step into that. Um, you know, what are your plans for these coal-fired power plants? I'll answer from, from PNM, and then, and then I think that will help you understand why Avangrid um, was willing to work with us. You know, the governor has her landmark Energy Transition Act, which calls for us to be able to securitize the plants in San Juan and shut those down. We already shut two units down, so the next two get shut down um, next summer. And that allowed for us to um, basically pay off the balance of the, the debt on those plants at a very low cost, and we'll pass those savings on to customers, and the shareholders forego any, any profit that they would have been able to make. But one of the, to me, the, the real neat thing about that legislation is the money that's in there to help train and help develop that economy, because you just can't shut down a coal plant and say, have a nice day, get a job. So it allows us to train workers, to help the Four Corners area do economic development. That is the first and only legislation of its kind um, in our country. And I think Ibadrola and Avangrid saw that and saw how we worked as a state to make sure we had a just transition. Then you look at the Four Corners power plant. We had been working on an early exit from that for some time. And Avangrid wanted to make sure that we did have a contract to get out of it and file uh, for the Commission for Abandonment, which they just gave us approval for. We need to make a, a contract change with um, NTEC. And there has been some criticism that, well, PNM, you're getting out of it, but it's going to NTEC, uh, which is the Navajo Transitional Energy Company. But that's what they wanted now. They need a glide path to get out of fossil filed energy, not a cliff. And so we're shutting the, the four units of San Juan will have been shut down in a pretty short period of time. Two units at Four Corners have already been shut down. Excuse me, three units at Four Corners have already been shut down. So this will allow them a, a just, because there's, there's funds for economic development in there, a just and a more gradual transition out of coal. Um, their economy was devastated also by the fact that the Navajo generating station shut down um, very suddenly, and that was a terrible polluter. It had no controls on it. Um, Four Corners does have some controls on it. So it's a compromise to make sure the environment is taken care of, but also uh, the Navajos are taken care of. 
And Pedro, what is the company's plans for these moving forward? I, I think as Pat mentioned, you know, we, we love that they were exiting coal. I think as Iberdrola, you know, we don't have any coal asset in operation. You know, we had a couple of, you know, coal facilities not in operation for a long time. We shut them down. We also shut them down in the UK. So we don't have any coal assets in operation. We're very happy about that. I think last week in the CAP26, my chairman actually, you know, proposed to shut down all the coal facilities in the world, you know, and put a deadline, you know, to all of them, you know, to stop, you know, having those assets in operation. And I think in this case, I think, they, you know, as, as Pat mentioned, you know, they already, you know, ex, you know shut down some fund. I think, you know, they have agreed and they have been approved now the sale of their financial stake in, 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 in Four Corners. They were not the operators. They were not the controlling entity. And that's why I think, you know, there is a path now, as she says, you know, way out of the power plant. We all want things to happen faster. And if Iberdola can help in any way, we will. But I think, you know, New Mexico, compared to many other places, you really have now a path ahead of you. I think you're, you're very lucky about that because that's not the case in many other places. So on the one hand, you have renewable energy, you have this merger with PNM and Avangrid. On the other hand, we know the bread and butter in New Mexico continues to be fossil fuels, uh, specifically oil and gas. And we know the Permian Basin in the southeast corner of the state is one of the hottest areas for that in the entire country. And we also know that that has huge environmental impacts and really complicates this equation of trying to move the state to renewable and trying to diversify our economy so we're not so reliant on oil and gas, which helps pay for schools and all kinds of uh, public services. It's a tough nut to crack, but we wanted to get an update on, on the activity in the Permian and the impacts. And so environment reporter uh, Laura Paskis did a Facebook Live recently and uh, talked to an expert in the field about all of the activity there and the implications thereof. So we wanted to share that with you here on the podcast as well. Let's turn it over to Laura. So here in New Mexico, we're often talking about climate change and how to address it in terms of mitigation and adaptation. We're seeing the impacts of climate change all across the state. But New Mexico is the only oil producing state in the country that has surpassed pre-COVID production levels. So joining me for a conversation today to talk specifically about the Permian Basin is Lauren Stockman. He's the research co-director with Oil Chains International. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, good to be here. Thanks for joining me. So I wanted to talk a little bit, start a little bit with like an overview of production on the New Mexico side of the Permian Basin. What what are things like down there these days? Um, well, things are booming about as much as they've um, ever boomed. There was, of course, um, you know, a lull and a, and, a, and, a, and a retraction, a retreat, I guess, in, uh, at the beginning of 2020 when the COVID crisis first struck. But, um, you know, if you look at the oil production data, um, the most recent data, which basically covers kind of September, October of this year, New Mexican oil and gas production, um, well, New Mexican oil and gas production in the Permian Basin has um, surpassed where it was before the COVID crisis. So um, I expect if you were to travel down there today, I haven't had the opportunity to uh, this year, but I, I was there in 2019. Um, you will, you know, you will see, uh, you know, in the intense 
activities of the oil and gas industry as much as you would have in say 2018 2019 when when it was really booming then and so all of this development is happening um it seems, you know, it seems like internationally we're talking about trying to rein in fossil fuel emissions. The Biden administration is talking about it. Certainly, the governor of New Mexico is talking about it. Um, are we just talking about these things? <laughs> are they actually happening? Well, I think there's there's a kind of uh, a bit of a dissonance going on with um, the New Mexican government in that you know the, the 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 administration is is very interested in promoting renewable energy. It's talking about sort of um, reining in uh, methane pollution, um, but it doesn't really like to talk about its role um, in in supplying oil and gas to global markets. And um, you know what that means for trying to tackle the the climate crisis. Um, you know we have been uh, trying to point out to um, uh, you know the, the administration that you know in a world that's trying to that needs to um, decrease oil and gas demand by around forty percent by the end of this decade by twenty thirty, an incre increasing supply by over fifty percent is um you know makes that task what much more difficult well i think at least from my perspective you know i'm often thinking about the the production side of emissions whether that's you know leaking pipelines faulty equipment things like that i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what happens to all this oil we produce because then there's there's a whole lifetime of of emissions related to that right Right, and um, this is something we're covering um, in our in our online report about the Permian Basin, PermianClimateBomb.org. And tomorrow we're actually launching the third chapter, which talks about um, both the role in the Permian Basin's role in uh, surging U.S. exports of oil and gas, um, and also the infrastructure that has spread from the Permian Basin to the Gulf Coast to enable that that. That those surging exports. So in 2020, even despite the COVID um, crisis, 30% um, of US oil production was exported. And most of that went through Gulf Coast crude oil export terminals that have only really sprung up since the export ban was lifted at the end of 2015. The Permian Basin, you know, since pipelines were built directly from the Permian Basin, particularly to Corpus Christi, um, but also to um, other centers on the Gulf Coast, such as, you know, around the Houston area, um, you know, exports have, have surged. And it's really, it's really been like the lifting of the crude oil export ban in, at the end of 2015 that has enabled the Permian Basin oil boom because U.S. oil refineries have not been, are, are not really configured to handle as much of this kind of light crude that the Permian Basin produces. Um, so without without the export ban being lifted, the boom would 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 be nowhere near what it is today. And you know it's the same for the gas. You know for every barrel of uh, oil, the Permian Basin is is primarily an oil basin, but it's sort of a very gassy oil basin. And there's a lot of gas that comes up with the oil, as well as um, these gas liquids which feed the petrochemical industry and the plastics industry. Um, and so you know the boom has really triggered. Um, a kind of secondary boom down on the Gulf Coast of 
pipelines, export terminals, petrochemical processing facilities, and LNG terminals as well, you know, compressing that gas, freezing that gas and exporting it abroad. So, you know, it's, it's hard to trace exactly um, the, 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 the precise percentage of New Mexican oil and gas that, export, that is exported. But, you know, when you look at where the infrastructure is, where it goes to, and when you look at the surging exports on the Gulf Coast, it's pretty clear that, you know, a large proportion is being exported to global markets. Yeah, I was just, I was thinking about a story that um, Terry Redfern, a reporter here in New Mexico did, looking at Max Midstream and their plans for the port of Calhoun, um, which, you know, they were trying to build this, this giant export facility and there've been all kinds of problems despite the tax breaks they've gotten and mm -hmm. millions and millions of dollars in investment. It hasn't gotten off the ground yet, but he writes in that story that all of that effort was aimed at getting a cut of the oil produced in the Permian in Texas and New Mexico and shipping it to Europe. And I think that's mm -hmm. something that here in New Mexico, we often aren't thinking about kind of the the, the life of, of these, um, these resources being pumped here. I'm mm -hmm. curious, you know, when the IPCC report came out earlier this year, um, they, they really kind of quantified the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that emissions with, you know, the rates of warming. I'm curious what your research is showing with respect to how this development in the Permian is affecting and will continue to affect the climate. Right. I mean, that comes back to, to, to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, if, 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 the, the IPCC has shown that if we're going to if we're going to stay at, uh, keep climate change to, to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is you know it's a huge challenge given where we are today and the and the inaction that we've that we've seen over the last decade, um, you know we the, the demand for oil and gas has to start going down and it's not today and um, you know the carbon budgets that that you're talking about in that report point to us you know consuming around 40 to 50 percent less oil and gas by 2030 than we were in 2020 um, and and you know if you if you actually if, if you look at what the permian basin is currently projected and when now i'm talking about the whole permian basin so the texas side as well if you look at what it's projected to produce between now and 2050 it could actually eat up about 10 percent of that carbon budget um and you know it, it comes back to that point of you know while we're while we're trying to um uh you know put oil and gas consumption into decline pushing more oil and gas onto the market and in fact flooding global markets which it's kind of hard to imagine today because we're in this kind of short rather short-term energy crunch at the moment if you you know if you've read the news about that there is you know but that's partly driven by OPEC's response to the COVID crash and the, and the shell boom in the US. But if you actually look at what's happened in the last decade, surging US oil production crashed global oil and gas markets and oil and gas was cheaper um, over the, generally over the last decade um, um, than, it, than it would have otherwise been and, and than, it, than, it, than it was for a while. And that has, that has stimulated demand and you know, lo and behold, we're in this position today, where demand is 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 booming because we've kind of locked in this demand based on the expectation of cheap oil and gas. So that you know, the shale boom, uh, you know, driven primarily by the Permian Basin, 
has 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 kind of stimulated global oil and gas demand by by pushing cheap oil and gas into the market and that's that's making it you know that's put us kind of on the back foot in terms of trying to, to trying to hit that that uh that goal of reducing demand over the next decade we have a, we have it's not impossible but we have a lot of work to do to get there and um you know booming oil plays in the US are not really helping right now. So how do we get up to a point where demand decreases? You brought up plastics, and I hear that a lot from the oil and gas industry really pushing this idea of more plastics. Can you talk about the demand a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, how do we how do we get or you know, in, in the if we just look at the US, about, you know, the US consumes um, around 20% of global oil about 20 million barrels per day of 100 million barrels per day with four, four to four and a half percent of the world's population. So the, so the US is, you know, particularly oil intensive uh, economy. Um, you know, half of that is gasoline demand, most of which goes into vehicles. You know, uh, it, during the Trump administration, the vehicle efficiency standards were rolled back. The tax credits for electric vehicles were not renewed so we you know we kind of lost four or five years where we you know we were trying to um stimulate a, a move away from gasoline vehicles to electric and to or to more efficient gasoline vehicles and we kind of lost that time um the infrastructure bill has you know some significant money for for um ev charging infrastructure and um, the Build Back Better Act, if it ever does pass in the Senate, hopefully we'll still have, um, uh, you know, some 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 good incentives for um, for electric vehicles. Um, I think, you know, if that passes, we will we will see in the next few years U.S. oil demand start to plateau and decline. It's it's a little bit, you know, we should have been there five five or more years ago, but that's kind of where we are. But you know, it's primarily about, you know, making that transition um, to more efficient vehicles, to electric vehicles away from gasoline. Um, uh, you know, it's about improving our transit infrastructure. It's, you know, it, it, the, the, the country is very much kind of, you know, being designed around um, private vehicle use. That's going to take a long time to change. But, you know, I think where we are with EVs um, um, and renewables, you know, we are on the verge of kind of, you know, tipping the tipping the balance in the other direction. But we need we need those incentives. You know, everyday working Americans can't just go out and buy, you know, the latest vehicle technology. We need those incentives to help that happen. Um, and you know, hopefully, we 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 will be getting there soon. Curious what you think, you know, for a state like New Mexico that's already, um, you know, really dealing with impacts of climate change already. And we're an oil and gas producing state um, where people are, you know, rightfully so very nervous about um, moving away from reliance on the oil and gas industry. I'm curious what opportunities you see for states like that, like New Mexico, in the coming years, whether that's in terms of diversification or, um, you know, new technologies coming down or 
give us a little bit of hope, Lauren. Yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I know there are some um, really good organizations working in your state trying to put, trying to really tackle this question of New Mexico's revenue dependence on, on, on the oil and gas industry. It's a very, it's a very tricky issue. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it, it hasn't been, uh, you know, properly grappled with in the last, you know, during this boom, we've been, we've been, you know, looking at this boom growing and growing over the last 10 years and have been kicking that can down the road and pushing that, pushing that down the road. Um, so, you know, I think it, I think it, um, you know, it, it draws on, on, on a number of things, you know, you know, obviously investing in, in, in the capacity, to, you know, in the, in the clean energy revolution, um, you know, I think the, the issue today is that is, is, uh, you know that that issue is, has not been put front front and center. You know we keep kind of kicking that down the road. Um, it's it's got to be it's got to be uh, something that the that the administration um, you know tackles head on because it won't last forever anyway. You know even if even if uh, uh, you know you have an, you have another ten years of 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 this uh, booming oil and gas growth you've got you know it will go into decline it's a it's a it's a it's a um you know it's a finite it's a finite resource um so you know i think i think there's some really interesting work going on looking at that issue but you know that those efforts need to be um seriously accelerated and you know we're also seeing you know in in these um uh, stimulus bills and infrastructure bills, you know, there's federal money there to, to um, stimulate, uh, you know, clean the clean energy economy and New Mexico, you know, should be, should be looking a, a little bit more about uh, what it can do with that, um, rather than just focusing on um, extracting as much revenue as possible from, from, from this oil and gas boom, it, it won't last. And, you know, the sooner the state grapples with that issue, the better. So you have a new report coming out tomorrow. Can we get a little sneak peek into what that focus will be? Well, you can actually, cause, and, and your listeners will be the first to know this. But you know, so we've 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 uh, released this uh, um, online report, which is really kind of a co collaboration with artists and graphic designers that does two things. It puts the Permian puts the Permian oil boom in in the context of the climate crisis, and it also links it to ongoing environmental injustice on the Gulf Coast with those, you know, that that build out of infrastructure and pet chems and exports that I was that I was talking about. We've been releasing it in part. So we released part one um, uh, about six weeks ago and part two a couple of weeks ago. Um, and part three, which really kind of um, uh, looks at that exports and infrastructure issue that I was talking about. We're officially launching it tomorrow, but if you were to go there today, you would actually find that it's already live. So that's on um, permianclimatebomb.org, permianclimatebomb.org. Um, it's uh, like I say, it's a it's a kind of it's a six chapter report. The first three chapters are now up, and chapters four to six will be um, up there before the Christmas break, um, where we get more into um, the community impacts and um the uh, the regulatory failure how both on in new mexico and in texas uh state regulators have failed to protect communities and the climate from from the impacts of this oil boom 
Well, thanks, Lauren. I appreciate you giving us this sort of bigger picture view of how these different, um, you know, plays here in the Southwest affect the larger world. So we'll put links up for those reports and we'll watch for four through six in the coming weeks. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. Lots of environmental type issues in this episode, but a lot of great uh, topics that are coming our way uh, right now. And, and another one doesn't have to do with renewable energy or oil and gas. It has to do with the names we call our outdoor spaces. And you may remember earlier this year on our land, uh, Laura Paskus did a piece uh, with then Representative Deb Holland about uh, her bill that would address some of these names that have culturally derogative or insensitive uh, names, words associated with them, and why we need to sort of readdress those. And that is something that um, now Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, it has really taken to heart in her new role. And she recently announced that um, squaw was a word that needed to be changed, which affects over 650, 650 place names from valleys to creeks to rivers. Uh, of course, Squaw Valley, a very popular uh, wintertime um, resort that we're all probably familiar with. Uh, and so she wants to address changing of anything with the word squaw in it uh, on public lands. As the Department of the Interior Secretary also setting up a task force to look at other uh, names that may be culturally insensitive, especially to Native Americans. And this is actually based on in the 1960s and 70s, a similar process was undertaken by the Department of Interior. But at that time, it only focused on names and words that were culturally insensitive to African American and Japanese American communities. And so this is something that uh, those champions of Deb Holland have pointed at from day one by having a Native voice in such a uh, historic position, uh, bringing attention to these things. And Deb Holland is making good on those promises uh, and also opening herself up at the same time to criticism for that, uh, largely around the area of, is that a top priority for her as the Secretary of the Department of the Interior? And you're going to hear some of that in our line opinion panel conversation from our most recent on-air show on New Mexico PBS. Uh, another passionate conversation. The line panel was fired up in our most recent show. I want to remind you who's on that. Uh, Sophie Martin, an attorney and line regular. Dan Foley, former minority whip. And Kathy McGill. And they have a very passionate conversation here on this topic. Would love to know what you think about this move by Secretary Holland to rename these uh, places with these terms that may not offend everybody, but offend some people, and is it right to make accommodations for that? So fascinating conversation here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it too. Leave us a message or hit us up on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. You can find us any of those places or NewMexicoInFocus.org. Words matter, as we were all reminded this week by New Mexico's own and U.S. Secretary, U.S. Interior Secretary, Deb Holland. She announced plans to remove the derogatory word squaw from all public lands, which could affect more than 650 locations, guys. That includes lakes, 
creeks, valleys, a lot more. Ms. Holland also says she is committed to identifying other culturally insensitive names, much as the Interior Department did back in the 60s and 70s with words that were derogatory to African and Japanese American communities back then. And Kathy, Ms. Holland is certainly bringing her Native American voice to the national stage, isn't she? Absolutely, yeah. as well she should be. Um, you know, this is rolled out during Native American History Month, mm -hmm. and um, I think quite appropriately so. Although there are, you know, lots of schools have thought about whether or not the word is derogatory. Uh, what I want to say is that uh, I don't get to decide that. The people who are, uh, you know, Native American get to decide it. Uh, Deb Holland is the Secretary of the Interior, and for the very first time, there's someone who is Native American who is uh, in charge of it. So it makes perfect sense that she would say, you know, on my watch, this is going to get changed. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. say, you know, go do it. Sophie, we learned that uh, the city of Las Cruces, considering changing names of Squaw Mountain Drive, is there any reason not to make these name changes wherever we can? Well, I suppose someone may argue that they have letterhead with the name of the right. street on it. Um, <laughs> I have boxes here. What am I going to do? But I remember that. I remember that when we flipped to MLK <laughs> Avenue years ago. Not here. A good reason. That's not it a good reason. About letterhead. And, and Gene, I myself look forward to the day that the panelists on this show don't want to say the word. Don't want to say the word, just as we would not say yeah. other words. I think this has been a real eye opener for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, that this movement, and I, and I'll also point out. Um, that this is not, this didn't come out of nowhere, that when she was a representative, Deb Holland put forward legislation to accomplish something similar with a, a broader number of, of locations mm -hmm. um, through the federal government, and that legislation has been reintroduced. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that there's a, a really lovely concerted push on this issue, and um, she's the right person in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. You know, Dan, when you think about it, there's also a bit of momentum on this. There's been states from Maine to Oregon who have removed the word squaw over the past few years. And I remind folks like Tahoe, you know, they dropped Squaw Valley. I mean, everybody knew where Squaw Valley was. You don't even think about the word. It's so familiar, you know, and so it, again, the public seems to want this as well. Is there anything wrong here with removing these names as far as- well, There's nothing concerned? wrong with removing them, but I think we're having a conversation, I think there's, you're, you're kind of having two different conversations, right? Mm -hmm. When you say the public wants to have these things removed, I, I think the word squaw, and it's interesting, I have a, a, a friend of mine, Native American, was a tribal leader. This came up just the other day, and he was like, I'm confused because in our language, squaw means wife or woman. Mm -hmm. He says, you can use it in a negative context. There's no, there's no doubt about that. Um, but his comments to me, which is exactly the way I felt was, I mean, there's a lot of problems out there right now. And, you know, going after things like that today, there just seems to be a lot more lower hanging fruit. Um, but, you but know, isn't that, can't you say that about anything, Dan? I mean, no, you know, it's, 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 there's better things to do syndrome. She is no, the no, Department of Interior Secretary. This is part right under her purview. It's not like she's reaching across the hall. To do something, you, know. you think so with all the stuff going on with our energy crisis and drilling and getting access to public lands, all stuff that falls under her purview. This is something that we're going to celebrate, right? We're paying the highest gas prices we've been paying in the last. Doesn't 10 matter, years. Dan. To I, what extent, though, do the community know. leaders who will serve and the the individuals who are running nonprofits who are involved in advocacy, to what extent is that 
community, that group of people going to solve an energy crisis. This is a different group of people focused on a different issue. Mm -hmm. It's not, we're going to take our oil and gas experts and put them on this issue. They keep doing their oil and gas stuff. Nobody's claiming that. You know, it's also not an either or, it's a both and. So it's time to do it. It's time to do it. Gene said she's the secretary of the department. And that's what my response to Gene was. He was like, oh, you're saying I just I think, you know, there's lots of words out there that have been used that are that are have a totally negative connotation and changes need to happen. Look, it doesn't matter to me whether they change the word or not. I change all the words they want to change. I just think this is another example of virtue signaling. It's we're going to address something. We're going to try to get our kudos out there. And at the end of the day, it's going to make little to no difference. And it's instead of taking on the real issues. Look, I'd, I'd like to ask, you know, I would ask the secretary, you know, well, we're celebrating during Native American month, changing of the word, taking the word squaw for the negative connotation. But you know, all the time she was in in Congress, and now as the secretary, we've got a problem with missing indigenous women. Where Which are she's we? Also she's also a major. She's the first thing she went she's after. She's the Dan. first person no, in that position. It was the first thing. made movement on it. You you gotta you gotta wake up and pay attention. Saying you're for something doesn't mean you're actually making a difference in wow. it. Wow. And but so, all right, let me let me. We, we need guys. We need to move on. Hang on a quick sec, Sophie. Should this approach be an example to other difficult conversations and discussions? like the statue and monolith controversies we've seen here in Albuquerque and Santa Fe. Does this conversation inform those conversations or vice versa? How should we I approach think it? Can. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it can, and especially as we look at, at other, you know, certainly in terms of language, but it, it certainly could in terms of in terms of other matters. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is really interesting about this particular situation, to use the example from Lake Tahoe for the, the ski basin, which, by the way, I did not actually know that's where it was, mm-hmm. um, and I... <laughs> Okay. Um, you know, community activists for years in the Lake Tahoe region has, have tried to get that name changed. That's right. And they've received nothing, mm-hmm. stonewall from the community, from the, you know, from government. And now that they have a real opportunity to make an impact and a partnership is being formed, partnerships, I should say, are being formed mm-hmm. so that these decisions can move forward more quickly, more efficiently. Yeah. You know, Kathy, and with real feedback, again, real it, input. it's interesting. I, I hear Dan's point and others making you know, the word, the origin of the Algonquin word squaw, mm-hmm. what meant woman or wife. And but mm-hmm. no one wants to seem to, you know, to acknowledge that you can take a word and change it into something else quite easily yeah, <laughs> and, and, have, and use it I'm as a use, hammer. You know, I'm going to use the word spade. Right. It became associated Thank you. with black people. And so when you say, I'm going to call a spade a spade, and I'm sitting in the room, I'm going to say, you know what, you need to like get some education. So the actual word didn't start out meaning that, but the now connotation of it, when you say it, means something else. That's, right. That's exactly what's happened here. Uh, it's not an either or, it's a both and. There's nothing wrong with doing it. And, and if not now, when? And if not, Deb Holland, who? Well, that's a good point. Is, again, is she doing her job? That's always the question. And uh, uh, Dan, you know, let me bounce back to you. I hear your points about there's other things to do at Interior, but let's stick to the knitting here. Is it not moving the public consciousness forward by removing these names? Just as simple as that. You know, I don't know what you're trying to get me to answer. I, the word has no, I'm not the guy to ask. It has no negative connotation to me. If it affects people and they want it removed, 
I got no problem with it. I'm not protesting that she shouldn't be changing the name. It doesn't it look, it doesn't affect me. So I can't give you an opinion that says you should or shouldn't you shouldn't or shouldn't change that word. You specifically asked me as my comment was, I just think there's bigger things that I think many people think that we should be focusing on. And that blew up into the whole well, you know, that I'm missing the point here. I don't think I'm missing the point. I think to to Sophie's uh, comments earlier that it's definitely Daniel. That Daniel, there's, there's, she has a staff of like over a couple of hundred. Hey, listen, you they can, can handle more than one issue change. at a time you at the Department run. of Interior. We are talking about Trust this me. issue, Gene. You can change the topic. You're the one. This group, this TV show, brought this topic up. You asked me what I thought about it. Do I think she's got the entire Department of Interior working on this? No, Gene, I don't. I don't think that. Listen, if you want to run her campaign and defend her, you do it. I just think she's not doing the right job that she needs to be doing. Do I have a problem with the word squaw? It doesn't affect me. I get it. It's exactly. not something that I should It doesn't be. affect you. It, that's it's what I said. It's not about you. I didn't say it was about me. But th right now, I'm the one on the show talking, so it is about me. It's my opinion that they're asking about. I know you don't like my opinion, but it is my opinion. All right, Dan, I got to wrap here. opinion I'm giving on the show. Appreciate it. You can learn more about this issue and the importance of place names on our website. In an Arlen episode, Laura Paskus did with then-Representative Holland early this year. All right, and I hinted at this earlier, but um, in early 2021, Laura Paskus in her monthly Arlen series uh, also took a look at the places that we, the names that we call our special places and why it's important to pay attention to that and why words matter. And at the time, she talked to Representative Deb Holland before she was appointed to the Department of the Interior. Uh, she had proposed legislation in the past and planned to again to address these from that capacity. And uh, also conversation with other folks about, again, why what we call these places that symbolize so much for so many communities, why that matters and why it has an impact. And so we thought, given the news from Deb Holland and the Department of Interior this week. It'd be a good idea to look back at that Arland episode. So we're going to bring that to you again here now. We all have a connection to the place we live, but what do we call those places? And whose names are considered the right ones or the valid ones? In this month's episode of Our Land, correspondent Laura Paskus talks with the Pueblo of Acoma's Teresa Pasquale and also Representative Deb Holland about reconciling with the past and making sure places don't include racial slurs so everyone feels at home on the landscape. We talked with Representative Holland in late December before she was nominated to head up the Department of Interior for President Biden. Now, there's a lot to cover, and you can watch a longer interview at the Our Land page on nmpbs.org. Snap open a map and read the place names listed across the landscape. Those words, the place names on the map, they're decided by the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. The federal agency was created more than a century ago to standardize place names throughout the United States. So we all call places by the same names. But the world outside is different from what you find on paper or a screen. Just think of how you describe places at the Matate and the Sandstone. Meet me where the porcupines are. Let's hike the trail where you saw the hummingbird last summer. Here in New Mexico and across the United States, 
Indigenous people have moved across these landscapes for millennia, and naming a place didn't mean claiming ownership. Teresa Pasquale with the Pueblo of Akamai talks about this. Our tradition lies in connecting those values, the things that we see, um, our core values of who we are that are associated with place, that are associated with an individual, and then transferring our hopes, our prayers for that person or that place by giving that same name. And so as our people moved on this landscape throughout time, then it also became important that our people, as they moved through their migrations across the Southwest, continued to not only remain connected to place, but also keep with them those values of place, those gifts of place, that creator imbued with those locations to take those with us as part of our collective memory and carry those names forward with us as we settled into what is now the Akama Valley. Carrying names forward is a sign of respect, a sign of connection, a way to guide people from the past through today and into the future. This connection is layered because of time but it's also complex because it connects us not just to the physical landscape that we have that surrounds us, but to everything that is associated within that landscape. More than a decade ago, tribes came together to protect what's called Mount Taylor, west of Albuquerque, from new uranium mines. Each tribe has their own name for the mountain, their own stories, their own connections. I had one elder who explained to the U.S. Forest Service that the mountain, in a sense, was almost as if there was a blanket spread out from the top, that this covered not just the peak of the mountain, which many outsiders believe that the mountain was literally just its peak. From a traditional perspective, it also encompassed the mesas and the valleys and the valley floor and that that connection began to be as far as the eye could see. When you're thinking from a perspective that forces you to define boundaries. That means not seeing a place as a single point, but looking at a mountain and seeing the mesas that swell from its hips acknowledging the snows that fall and in the spring flow to gardens and orchards to appreciate the waters people drink and use in ceremonies all of these things are connected even if we seem to forget that today across our maps there are also places with names that are racist that make people feel unwelcome like their stories don't matter Last year, Representative Deb Holland and Texas Representative Al Green introduced the Reconciliation and Place Names Act. These places, they belong to all of us, right? They don't just belong to one person or one group of people. We felt very strongly that all visitors to our public lands and our public spaces, they deserve to feel welcome and comfortable while enjoying those places. 
these offensive and and racist place names, uh, those are sort of relics of the past. Holland and Green feel it's time to reconcile that. If passed, this bill would bring people from all different communities to make recommendations to the board on geographic names, to make changes that are respectful of one another. How some of our Pueblos have changed their names back to their original Native American names. I think it matters to a community of people what things are called. Each community should be able to decide. A report last year found hundreds of federally recognized places with racial slurs. Some of those in New Mexico, some landmarks that are being talked about for renaming in the bill, Squaw Peak, Chinaman Hills, Jim Crow Shaft. Those are places I don't think that have any relevance essentially to maybe those New Mexico landmarks. Those bring up a racist past. And like Mount Taylor, named for the 12th president of the United States, plenty of places bear the names of people who never loved or respected them, or the people living nearby. When I was in college, I had a professor who used to say, you can tell a country by who their heroes are. And who are our heroes, right? Are they folks who have stood up for underrepresented communities? Are they folks who have stood up and worked hard for vulnerable communities? Pasquale explains that when we move through landscapes, we create our own stories and memories. And those are layered on the countless stories that came before. When we go out into place that we carry a responsibility to know more, to know about these places that surround us so that we can protect them, so that we can conserve them, and so that we can also give that gift to others and say, you know, there was a great place I hiked, you know, on such and such a day, and this is its story, and I think you should go there. And so we pass those gifts on to other people. For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Pascas. That'll be a wrap for this episode of New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Again, I am your host, Kevin McDonald, an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We thank you so much for watching. We ask you to help us out, show your support by leaving us a review, uh, sharing with your friends, uh, liking the podcast, just spreading the word. It all really helps and we really appreciate it. We're hard at work already for this week on a bunch of content. We'll be keeping a close eye on the special session that starts today to deal with redistricting and some spending of federal COVID relief. Uh, so keep an eye on our social media for updates on all of that as well as on the show and the podcast next Friday. Until then, we thank you for listening and we encourage you all to stay safe, stay healthy.